When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the British Royal Fanatic Podcast. I'm Hayden, your American friend with a passion for British royal history. In the past few months, we've been covering a lot of royal news and very pressing journalistic-type stories because, let's face it, there's a lot that's happened, there's a lot that needed to be discussed. This week, we are going to be switching gears a little bit and taking a break from royal news and world updates to discuss something more cultural and something that has not left the sphere, and I doubt it will be leaving anytime soon. Bridgerton came into the world Christmas Day 2020, and it seemingly hasn't left since. It's reignited an interest in love of the Regency, all things Jane Austen, and has even, in my opinion, been one of the major influences for a new competition reality dating show that is based in a Regency-type world called, I I believe it's called The Courtship. We've reviewed royal media before, direct royal media, actively discussing royals, such as the various depictions of Princess Diana in film, we've reviewed the film Spencer, and we've shared little anecdotal opinions about the King's Speech, the show The Crown, and so on. Today we're going to be shifting into a different lane, which is that of royal-adjacent media, media that, while not directly involving the royal family, deals with the peerage, you know, period dramas. This is shows like Downton Abbey, films such as The Duchess, the various adaptations of the Jane Austen books, such as Pride and Prejudice. All of these royal adjacent, they don't actively deal with the royal family, but they involve the peerage, and in some cases, the royal family might make an appearance. Bridgerton is based on a series of romance novels under the same name by author Julia Quinn. The first book, The Duke and I, came out in 2000, and the ninth and final book, yes, ninth, The Bridgertons' Happily Ever After, was published in 2013, ending the Bridgerton series. The books, and in conjunction, the television series, follows the aristocratic Bridgerton, and the eldest brother, Anthony, is the new head of the family, the new Viscount Bridgerton. They are, by all intents and purposes, what I would consider old money and their incredibly influential favorites at the court of Queen Charlotte. Seemingly, all eyes are on them at every move that they make. Season 1 enters and centers around Daphne, but each of the series follows one member of the Bridgerton family as they juggle trying to find love in the incredibly strict, very uh, etiquette (laughs) restrictive world that is the Regency. They have to juggle what their heart says versus what their family and what their society says. What is a good match socially, and in some cases monetarily, versus truly what will make you happy. The first season follows Daphne as she's the eldest daughter and her first social season as she maneuvers her way to try to find true love. She gets labeled the diamond of the season, but doesn't like the men that she's she's attracting. So she forms a pact with Simon, his grace the Duke of Hastings. In turn... Sparks fly as this prearranged agreement 
of keeping up appearances that she has the Duke's attention while he keeps all the ladies away forms a real romance. But of course, there's ups and downs, deception, all filled in between. There is the Foyle family, the Featheringtons, as their daughters are now on their second and third, many seasons deep, as they still have yet to find love, and they're what we would consider nouveau riche. And of course, you have Lady Whistledown, the societal paper gossip column that seemingly knows everybody's business and does not hold back. Season 1 is filled with wonderful comedic bits, real scenarios, and in some cases, the real bits of courtship, all while being wrapped up in this wonderful glitz of the Regency. Of course, if you do not like scandalous scenes, there are some parts of this show that you might not want to watch because it does hold back. And in some cases, that is what really put it on the market of having this period drama be so scandalous and risque. Bridgerton rides this wonderful line between romantic comedy and period drama to create this wonderful historical fantasy. The show was an instant success and it reignited this interest in courtship, these older ways and into the Regency. Many have dissected this series in terms of production, production design, costuming, the entertainment side of things. And there have been a lot of journals that have covered the historical accuracies, have tried to find this middle ground. Today, we are going to be dissecting how accurate is Bridgerton, this historical fantasy set in personally one of my favorite historical time periods. How accurate is it? What did the show get right historically? And what did the show get wrong historically? One thing that needs to be acknowledged before we even delve into the minutiae of the historical accuracy of Bridgerton is that Shonda Rhimes and the production team have gone on record saying that this show is not actively trying to be a history lesson. It's not actively trying to be accurate all of the time. They're acknowledging that they take liberties, they change things, they stick to history at times and in other instances, they adapt the show to keep it modern for modern audiences. They want to allow today's modern world to see themselves in these characters and in these real life situations granted in the backdrop of the regency one of those items is the casting and this very diverse cast where we have people of color mixing with members of the british aristocracy and those people of color are aristocrats themselves it's a wonderful commentary on race and classism without actively saying it it's just there and you have to pick up on it Productions done by Shondaland and in turn Shonda Rhimes are known for their diverse casting, which in turn brings to life some beautiful and wonderful performances that personally, I wouldn't change at all. This show could not have been cast better. But without further ado, let's delve into what did season one get right and what did season one get wrong. To understand what the show got right, we do need to say that this show actually had a historical advisor. Hannah Grieg has previously worked on the film The Duchess from 2008 and The Favorite from 2018, and she had her own team, and there were historical advisors on the show. They helped with dance, etiquette, and everything in between to really bring to life the Regency. But even then, she acknowledges that there were times where they broke from what was historical, and the show clearly didn't hold back. They actively acknowledged it, and you know they moved on. So they did have a historical team there to keep as much of the show as accurate as they could, but they knew when to break and to let the drama 
unfold. What did the show get right? Well, season one is set between 1813 and 1814 London, which is in the middle of the Regency. The Regency is concretely from 1811 to 1820, but some historians have argued that we began to feel the beginnings of the Regency in 1809. What is the Regency? The Regency is when Parliament enacted the Regency Act that allowed the Prince of Wales, future King George IV, to act as Prince Regent on behalf of his father. It was signed and enacted in 1811 and lasted until the death of King George III in 1820. King George III, as we see in the show, wasn't all there. He really wasn't all there mentally and emotionally. He had struggled historically with some bouts of what they called at this period madness that even now, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but he wasn't there concretely. And there were times earlier in his reign in the 1790s where they thought they were going to have to sign the Regency Act, but King George III brought it back together. He held down the fort, but then in 1810, 1811, they finally looked around and said, he can't do this. He's he's not here. He can't, he can't do his job as king. So they finally enacted the Regency Act and the Prince of Wales became the Prince Regent. Thus, of course, sparking the nine-year period that is the Regency. In the books that I have read on Regency history, one thing to note is that the Prince of Wales did not really like the idea of being Prince Regent at times. He loved everything about being royal but the actual work, especially when it came to war, when it came to dealing with Parliament. He loved being this playboy prince that lived this life filled with debauchery, parties, mistresses, drinking, gambling. The parties that happened at Carlton House are endless, and there are political cartoons that back that up. But to round out this discussion about the real historical period, he didn't really want to do it. So in turn, the Prince Regent at times had a very negative reputation walking into being the Prince Regent because he just didn't want to do the job. He was also married to Carolina Brunswick, and they had a very tumultuous marriage. So within the royal family, there was a lot of ups and downs in the Regency. But to the peerage and what we know of the aristocracy, it is this glitz and glamour. There were some of the most salacious wild parties, beautiful clothes, beautiful people, wonderful food, drink. And there was this also great disparity where there was a lot of poor, a lot of crime. Some of the most notorious true crime stories began here in the Regency. So there's this big dichotomy with the Regency the glitz and the glamour and this wonderful uh, impression of the aristocracy and then this very poor. So this is the, the time period that we're entering in, in Bridgerton. And in my opinion, the show got a lot of big pillar things right. They really captured this spirit of the Regency, this glitz and glamour, the big parties, the food, the dancing, the societal pressures, the marriage market. They got a lot of big pillars right that really helped set the scene. One thing that the show got right a lot, in my opinion, is the marriage market and the pressure of the social season. And there are a lot of historians that will defend me in that statement. The book, The Season, A Social History of the Debutante by Christian Richardson, really paints the picture of what the marriage market and social season looked at at this time. And it wasn't fun. It was very stressful. There was a lot of societal expectations. You had 
the few months of the season to find someone you, you, you clicked with that was above your social status, that had more money than your family, so your family would move up in society. And once you got married at the end of the season, if it worked, it worked. If it didn't, well, you're stuck with it. Bridgerton really gets that right. The pressure and naivete of Daphne walking into this social season for her first. Then you have the Featheringtons that are going on their multiple seasons now and the stress of we haven't found a husband yet. We don't want to be spinsters. So these social season pressures, the marriage market pressures, the various balls where in some cases you see the characters being out all night and having to go to another one the next day. The show really got that right. The big center of the show, this social season marriage market, that is what the show really excels at, the societal pressures there. So kudos to you. A few minor points that the show did get right. One we've already discussed at length in a previous episode, but there is enough evidence to suggest that Queen Charlotte was biracial. If you want to hear that in full detail, you can listen to one of our previous episodes where we go into length about her genealogy and where she came from. But there's enough evidence to show that she was. So in the show, when she's being portrayed by a woman of color, there's some truth there. The other one is the episode involving Prince Friedrich of Prussia. He, in reality, was an actual distant cousin of Queen Charlotte. He was a cousin to her through Queen Charlotte's niece, Princess Frederica of Mecklenburg-Streitzig. Another big pillar that the show got right is the outdoor garden scenes. Those, without saying them, were taking place in London's Pleasure Gardens. There's enough evidence to suggest it was probably Vauxhall Gardens, which was this cream of the crop, the big epitome of where you wanted to go. But Pleasure Gardens at this time looked very different from the like public parks that we have today, especially here in America. Pleasure Gardens in the Regency were the places to see and to be seen. They were areas where members of the royal family, very powerful members of the peerage, could mingle together with other non-titled commoners that had money. They had food, booze, entertainment, a really groundbreaking lighting designs and fireworks at the time they had music they had little shops they had sprawling gardens and promenades where again you could walk and eat and socialize and be seen and people to talk about you the scenes where the bridgertons and the featheringtons are outside and they're walking around and oh come and promenade with me that was very real the garden culture especially if they're going to Vauxhall gardens this epitome this cream of the crop is very real and i really appreciate that the show didn't stray away from the garden culture and going out and the scenes where daphne and simon are walking around clearly you know with a chaperone behind them but everybody's staring and pointing and the society papers being first distributed in the gardens for everybody to see and talk about and gossip that's all very real that i appreciate the show in its historical fantasy includes Another point that the show got right is the boxing culture, the very masculine boxing that really took off in the Regency. And one of the characters, Will Mondrich, is actually based off a real black boxer from the Regency. Boxing was huge. It was a large form of entertainment and people gambled on it, people bet. So those scenes involving boxing and men training to work out in boxing, everything boxing in the Regency, yes, tip your hat, kudos to you. You got that right. Gossip columns were very real in the Regency, so the idea of Lady Whistledown's societal paper, very real. 
the character of Lady Whistledown in her paper is a sort of amalgamation of a whole bunch of societal gossip columns at the, at the time, but the idea of somebody under a pseudonym writing a gossip column that will raise some people up and show how great they are and give them accolades and others to tear them down, talk about scandal, very real. Lady Whistledown, while an amalgamation of a whole bunch of characters, is very real. And wanting to find out who this unknown character is to go, why are you, again, very real. The storyline involving Lady Whistledown is very, very real. There are last few points that sort of wrap up the overall etiquette of everything in the period. Yes, aristocratic women were that naive about sex. Yes, they didn't know a whole lot. And yes, they had to ask other women, maids, mothers, people in their lives about how things worked. Yes, that is real. Those storylines are real, those arcs, which evolves into this dichotomy that yes, it was this very real expectation that women were these beautifully naive, you know, pure beings, and men were living these debaucherous lives, being wild and crazy, having mistresses, partying. It was all very real. Those, the very strict etiquette of uh, courting couples not allowed to be alone, and the scandal of, did I see you with him alone? That's all very real. The social calls and, well, this person's here, we have to acknowledge, we have to do that. A lot of the etiquette, the nitty gritty of it, they got right. The dancing, they got mostly right. The double standard that women had, the gambling at the time, where women are gambling, men are gambling, there's a lot that the show really gets right. So what can we take away from what Bridgerton got right? The big pillars of the show, etiquette, the marriage market, the garden scene of Vauxhall Gardens, the role of men and women, the double standard of men and women, the naivete of women, the also the scandalousness of it. People back in the Regency did party hard, they <laughs> they had affairs, they didn't strike they didn't shy away from sex. So the show gets a lot right that feels very scandalous being set back then, but in reality it's not too far off from where the truth is. But there are things that the show got wrong. What did the show get wrong? We can categorize these into three different areas. Editing mistakes, actual historical inaccuracies, and some weird character motivations. The editing mistakes. <laughs> like any show, things slip through the cracks, things somehow make it into the final edit, and lo and behold, we see them. These are things like manhole covers, a Primark sign, the yellow lines on the road that wouldn't have existed then. Those things made it into the final edit quite a few times, which either it's a matter of we couldn't afford to edit them out, or you know what, just leave it, hope nobody notices. So those things, a lot of people have made a big deal of, I can see a Primark sign. I get it. I see you. I understand you. It takes us a little bit out of the period, but it's nothing to really make a big deal of in some respects. Now into another thing that's editing, but also something they don't really have control over, which is Lancaster House. Lancaster House is an official government building that was built in conjunction with Buckingham Palace that was also designed by um, Thomas Nash, who did a lot, of course, as we know, if you listen to the Buckingham Palace episode, these wonderful, splendid interiors. Lancaster House was built at the exact same time in the exact same style. Lancaster House can be rented out by film and television production teams to use as a backdrop and stand-in for Buckingham Palace, because you cannot film in Buckingham Palace in terms of for television and, and that type of entertainment. Shows like Downton Abbey, The Crown, 
and the film The King's Speech have all used Lancaster House as this Buckingham Palace stand-in, and now Bridgerton falls in line with that. So we have this continuity of what Buckingham Palace quote-unquote looks like, and it's actually not far off. How this falls into an inaccuracy is if you have watched the Architect Digest film when season two of The Crown came out, it's on YouTube, it's like a 20-minute video, where one of the big set designers talks about these big scenes. One of the things in Lancaster House is they have bomb curtains up that are these moderately sheer white curtains that you can't move that are on all the windows to kind of keep glass and any pro uh, projectiles out um, outside so nothing gets in. Those you can't remove. Those are safety features. You can't get rid of them. So the big challenge with the production team is trying to still keep this period accurate splendid interior but also these very modern bombing curtains that we can't get we, we cannot get rid of them so once you notice them in the lancaster house scenes especially in that really long gallery you can't unsee them and they're very real so though that's one editing it's it falls in a weird category of editing mistake but also setting mistake but also safety feature Lancaster House is a weird one. So it's wonderful that they use Lancaster House, accurate to the period. We love that. But the other side is the modern safety features that they can't get rid of. Now onto things that truly were not accurate, did in some cases didn't exist in the period. But we understand why they do it. There's a few small things. See the scrapes didn't exist until the late 19th century, early 20th century. The first doorbells did appear around the Regency, but they didn't really first catch ground until 1831, and even then, they weren't a standard in homes until the 20th century, so doorbells, mm, not so much. The big inaccuracy that a lot of people have issues with is the costuming. The costuming is beautiful, very stylized, you get a real sense of the character and how the character behaves without even seeing anything, but in turn, they take artistic liberties here. A lot of the silhouettes are correct, but the fine details, the coloring, the embroidering, the styling are all very modern. And it is one of the things that helps make the show accessible and modern with these you know, bright colors, these hair designs, makeup designs. But in some cases, those aren't 100% accurate to, to the period. What do I mean by that? Glitter did not exist until 1934. So seeing glitter on costuming and makeup and all of that really pulls you out because that's over 120 years before it officially arrived. The corsetry. The women in the show are seen wearing these really intricate sort of Victorian era corsetry that is very restrictive, hard to breathe, very much real, don't want to take away from that, but they're about 40 years too early. The type of corsetry that was worn in this period were what are called stays and it wasn't as intense underneath because you need to think of the silhouette the umpire waist and everything dropped down there's not much of a silhouette to see so the corsetry wasn't as intricate so a lot of historical costumers have pointed out why are we having this really intricate corsetry that's being completely covered up by the period accurate gown silhouettes why are we having this you're creating a shape that's in turn not going to be seen uh the coloring the fabric the styling with hair and that's where the show begins to take artistic liberty to make it modern especially the outfits worn by lady featherington those are very modern which i can understand they're trying to show nouveau riche versus you know this older money 
making the show accessible and understandable. There's color stories happening. So a lot of people have issues with the costuming and the styling because it's very modern, but I personally don't have a problem with it. The other two sort of bigger historical things that I also understand in terms of historical costuming is Daphne's white wedding dress. At the time in the Regency, wedding gowns were either gold, silver, or if you were a member of the royal family, they were your official court dress. If a gown was white, which as an aside, they did exist then, they were decorated with very intense gold and silver embroidery, so it didn't 100% look white. The idea of a completely white wedding dress did not come into fashion until Queen Victoria and her wedding in 1840. At that point, the idea of the white wedding dress entered the cultural sphere sphere, and clearly has not left. The last little bit is the multi-tiered wedding cake. The multi-tiered wedding cake first entered the scene with the wedding of His Royal Highness Prince Leopold, the Duke of Albany, and that was in the late 1880s, early 1890s. So in 1813, the wedding cakes were a lot smaller. So this huge multi-tiered wedding cake would not have been the thing that would have been in vogue. And thus, Simon and Daphne wouldn't have had one. The last bit of inaccuracies deals with character motivations, and there's two that really stand out to me. The first one is the character who got pregnant. The character's name is actually escaping me, but in the show, it's a very modern storyline. She gets pregnant, she acknowledges that she's pregnant, but she actively tries to seek out the father, keep to say, I'm going to keep the child, and um, doesn't shy away from it albeit the weird deception storyline where the one Bridgerton brother is almost deceived into marrying and having sex with her to try to convince him that this is his child. But the idea of a pregnant woman in the Regency having a child out of wedlock wanting to keep it is a very modern storyline. In reality, yes, she would have acknowledged that she was pregnant, but she would have quietly gone off into the country, had the baby, and then would have either give place the baby in an orphanage or found a family that would be willing to take the baby in. And then that'd be that. She would just move on with her life and go back to London, catch the next season, and try to really act like it didn't happen. It's very bleak. It's kind of dismissive and not the best, but that's what would have happened. She wouldn't have been gung-ho wanting to keep the baby because it would have been a complete... So- it would be the end of her socially. So she would have wanted to give the baby a good life or what she thought was a good life, and then move on with hers. The last one of character motivations is that of Simon not wanting to have children. Being a duke, being as high in society as he is, he would have wanted children. Albeit, he did experience a lot of trauma from his father and the negative aspects there, but in the end, it would not have taken as long for him to come around to having children. Once he married, he would have seen, you know, the status of his family, the status of her family, and would have wanted to ensure her place, in turn their place, and to keep the dukedom going. Not to dismiss any of the trauma that he experienced as a character, very real, not taking that away, but it wouldn't have taken as long to convince him. There wouldn't have been this really long deception and all, all this conflict. It would have resolved itself much sooner. Of course, why is this conflict there? Because there needs to be conflict for characters to have a compelling story. Otherwise, it'd be a very boring show. One last fun discussion is in the casting. And just to acknowledge that really diehard historians have pointed out that while this casting is wonderful and we like to see it in terms of for modern audiences, but in turn, they um, 
that's one thing that isn't 100% accurate, again, in terms of with costuming, not 100% accurate, but it's wonderful commentary having these people of color in these high societal positions, aristocrats, titled peers, members of the royal family, in a time period where imperialism and colonialism was reaching a high point, having characters be people of color, granted, I'm not, I can't speak from their experience. I'm not, I'm a cisgendered gay white man, but reading people of color commenting on it, they've acknowledged that this is a wonderful, a wonderful way to turn history on its head in a time where there was a lot of slavery, a lot of imperialism. We now have a show at the same time period where people of color are being shown as equals. While, again, not accurate, to me, in my opinion, it doesn't matter. It's a great show and they get a lot right. And when I, when it comes to casting for me, I personally really like it. So we've discussed what the show got right. We've discussed what the show got wrong. What can we take away? Bridgerton is this wonderful historical fantasy that rides this line between romantic comedy and period drama. There's compelling characters, real things that make us really relate to these characters. But historically, the show gets a lot right. A lot of big pillars are correct in terms of the setting, what was happening societally, day-to-day stuff, etiquette, dancing, societal expectations, familial expectations, rules... There's so much that the show gets right that I applaud them for. For a show that doesn't want to be 100% historically accurate, they get a lot right. So I really have to tip my hat to them. And what they do get wrong are these little minute fine details that people love to point out when they go through the show with a fine-toothed comb. Modern things making its way, you know, because of editing mistakes. Um, Costuming choices to that aren't 100% accurate because we have to fill in the character's personality and, you know, to make the show accessible and modern. Overall, I think Bridgerton is fantastic. It doesn't shy away from really sensitive topics. It doesn't shy away from really deep commentary. Characters feel real. The scenarios feel real. And me as a historian, granted an amateur one, I can watch this show and unplug my brain because the show has acknowledged we're not trying to be historically accurate and they get a lot right for me to where I can unplug my brain and just be entertained and enjoy a television show. Bridgerton has taken the airwaves by storm and I doubt it will go away anytime soon and season two is just around the corner but there we have it everybody season one of Bridgerton what they got right what they got wrong. Let me know what do you think? Do you think the show is fantastic? Do you think sometimes it can be a little much? Do you enjoy it? Did you notice some of these inaccuracies? Did you notice a lot of these big swaths of historical accuracy? Let me know. I would really like to hear what your thoughts on Bridgerton as we get ready for season two, airing the 25th of March, where now we follow Lord Bridgerton, Anthony, as he tries to find his wife. My sources for today's podcast are OprahDaily.com, DenOfGeeks.com, Insider.com, Elite Daily, LivingALot.com, the Bridgerton book series by Julia Quinn, IMDb, This Season, A Social History of the Debutante by Kristen Richardson, and Vauxhall Gardens by Alan Borg and David Cook. If you made it this far, thank you for stopping by the podcast today. I really appreciate it. If you would like to email a podcast to suggest topics for future episodes or let me know how I'm doing, you can do so by dropping me a line over at britishroyalfanpod at gmail.com. 
if you would like to check out the podcast blog we do have an official wordpress blog go over to british royal fanatic podcast.wordpress.com the links will be posted on all the official social medias if you would like to check out the official podcast social medias we have an official twitter page at fanatic underscore royal in addition to a facebook page the british royal fanatic podcast where i post blog posts things that are happening in real time with the royal family and what's happening in real time with the podcast the family's growing so be sure to head on over there if you feel so inclined and would like to support the podcast you can do so by donating we have a one-time paypal donation link that is pinned to the main twitter page head on over to wherever you're listening to rate review subscribe and share the more you do that the bigger the family can get and the more opportunities the podcast can have Have a great rest of your week, everybody. Stay safe and stay healthy, and I'll see you in the next one.